You're listening to Deep Dave, a deep dive into the history and cultural significance of the Dave Matthews Band. This is part one of our discussion about the studio album, Crash. And now, it's time for a... Deep Dive! The year is 1996, and the Dave Matthews Band hot off of releasing their debut album, Underneath the Table and Dreaming, six times platinum, two-time Grammy nomination, are in the studio, and they're about to release what many would consider the quintessential Dave Matthews experience in Crash. Now, we don't have to go over too many of the qualifiers. Seven times platinum, highest selling record of the Dave Matthews Band to date. Highest streaming record of the Dave Matthews Band to date. You can find that on Spotify. Uh, The only Grammy win in the band's history. Uh, the, The list goes on and on. And of course, home of the global smash hit crash and we're going to get into that track too mm-hmm. um the descriptor for this record uh could take an entire episode itself but we're going to jump right into our deep dave experience again i am nick and i'm adam and we are here for round two this time it's the dave matthews band's crash now this is the album that the industry the music industry and thus history used to choose the Dave Matthews Band as being worthy. And worthy, of course, comes in quotes as well. But not only selecting uh, so much to say as the winner for the Grammy for Best Rock Performance by a duo or group with vocals, thus honoring Dave Matthews Band's relevance and significance of the time, but also with Crash becoming an ultra-mega hit song that became bigger than the band itself. Crash was the band's answer to, how do we take a six-time platinum album and do it better? (laughs) And that answer, in hindsight was to make the music tighter, the attitude meaner, and overall make an album that was weirder. Totally agree with that. You know, this album is uh, definitely a more luxurious affair, something where the band is allowed to kind of uh, spread out. And um, and there was a willing... One of the key things I learned about when I was researching the record was that uh, the band came to Lily White and said, hey, uh, when we record this, we want to record in a circle... Uh, together all at once. We don't want to do the overdub thing, which is the thing that uh, that Lily White was pretty adamant about being the uh, control freak that he can be sometimes. Um, and it kind of that right there kind of set the stage for being for kind of defining what this record came to be about. Now let's talk about 1996 real quick and uh, just the context of the music in the year in general. The highest selling album, Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. Uh, we can all remember Alanis Morissette as being. Uh, I don't. I think it's safe to say that she uh, would essentially be like the Lady Gaga of her time. Um, yeah, yeah. Just this absolute phenom, mm-hmm. uh, pop culture smash, but also brought an energy and an attitude that was just completely raw and completely unforeseen beforehand. Right. Like the difference between her and Sheryl Crow was like Lady Gaga at her sort of grimiest against like Katy Perry. You know, yeah, just like yeah. uh, uh, just separated herself from the other female critical darlings and came at it with such an intensity. And, you know, you think of the way that she was kind of um, displaying that sort of raw edge um, personified by, of course, the album Jagged Little Pill, uh, famously describing even like famous uh, TV show uncle Dave Coulier at the time, who was the most wholesome member of the most wholesome TV show on television, Full House. And 
describing like a, a very lewd sexual act that she was performing with him and just dedicating an insanely angry song to like the way that he just, you know, abused her mentally and things like that. I mean, it, it was like pulling the curtain on over from the eyes of, of America's sweetheart. So, yeah, very much so. And, you know, I, I feel like <clears throat> Alanis represents uh, a culmination of things with the record industry, you know, with with Kurt Cobain gone in the early part of the 90s, there was, you know, this room for a new kind of angry torchbearer. And there were other, like, iconic women in music during the 90s, like you mentioned, Sheryl Crow, but also there was, a, I think her name was Joan Osborne. Uh, there was a, doc on it, their name escapes me right now. Um, Would it have been uh, Courtney Love? Like Courtney, Courtney Love, absolutely. Um, Natalie Merchant. Uh, and so, like, there were these other, you know, iconic, uh, Tori Amos, uh, Adi DeFranco, you know, but Alanis Morissette was kind of the product of a, of, I mean, I, I don't like using the word product because she is a good artist. I'm not trying to, like, take anything away from her. But the thing is, is that there definitely was kind of a, uh, a corporate culmination of, like, let's take something that is quintessentially 90s, the grunge, the edge, the flannel, but we're also going to package it in something that can be, you know, probably going to be profitable and be, you know, kind of a, a, a pop culture moment, a monoculture moment. And that definitely happened in Atlantis. Atlantis is in many ways quintessentially 90s, the way Kurt Cobain is, the way a lot of other, you know, um, uh, significant musicians from that era are. And, you know, um, so again, in context, highest selling album of 1996. Now, the Grammy for album of the year in 96 was, again, uh, Atlantis. Uh, for Jagged Little Pill, but that came out in February, so that would have qualified a record that came out uh, probably somewhere in like mid to late 1995. Mm -hmm. um, but receiving that award so early in the year catapulted it to becoming the highest selling record of 96. Dave's, uh, the Dave Matthews Band's Crash, coming out April 1996, landed at number two on the Billboard charts when it came out, and again, has since gone on to sell seven million. So while it didn't exactly... Uh, get the nomination for, say, Album of the Year. Alanis mm -hmm. was kind of dominating in that sense. Um, Dave certainly uh, did very well for himself. The band did very well for himself through 1996 mm -hmm. with this record. Mm -hmm. uh, they did end up winning the Grammy, like I said, uh, the following year in 1997 is when they were awarded uh, for their for the success of 96. They were awarded the Best Rock uh, with a duo with vocals, you know, whichever one that is, uh, mm -hmm. all those different qualifiers to <laughs> yeah. just give it to whoever they can um other other um interesting winners for that year grammy for album of the year in 1997 celine dion's falling into you now i didn't look too far into this record but is it the one with the titanic song on it it, it had might, to have been right it might have been yeah that wouldn't surprise me Ti titanic was 97 yeah so we're we, we know that they were right uh they went hand in hand and then grammy for record of the year eric clapton's change the world 97 yeah. So those would have been the two uh, pieces of music that really dominated 1996 uh, while Dave's uh, was doing his thing with Crash. Yeah, you know, in 1996, is, uh, we were talking about 94 uh, last episode, uh, and uh, 96, I was reading about like what happened in that year, and there were a lot of interesting things that make a great contrast with 94. Uh, first off, in, just in music, you have things like, uh, you have All Eyes on Me, by Tupac, the first double album in rap, uh, but some other pop culture uh, elements. You know, you had the Spice Girls; they released "Wannabe." The movie Independence Day came out. The Nintendo 64 came out. Uh, Google launched. Uh, Papa and Google didn't even have their own um, 
their own, uh, it wasn't Google.com at the time. It was the Google search engine. The link was different. I don't remember exactly what it was. Uh, Pop-up video happened on VH1. And the, um, you know, there are a lot of things that happened in 96 that were just, in, I, don't have, I don't know how else to describe them, but they were so trashy. <laughs> and, you know, you, you I know, thought you were going a different direction. No, with that. no, no. Like, like, so '94, like we talked about it being like this, like convergence of good taste and like mass appeal and like popularity. And for me, at least, the reality of the '90s was that it was kind of this chaotic, rip roaring time, but it was also just a really trashy time. For example, like in '96, Hammer filed for bankruptcy. Uh, Snoop and his bodyguard were acquitted of first degree murder. Prince married a backup dancer that was 15 years younger than him. Lisa Marie Presley divorced Michael Jackson. The same year he was performing Earth Song and Jarvis Cocker like crashed his performance on stage, citing that he thought you know, Michael Jackson was an egomaniac. Slash announced, Slash from Guns N' Roses, he announced via fax that he was leaving Guns N' Roses. The Tickle Me Elmo like craze was going on. Those, these were being sold for $30 a pop. Oh, that, but, was, that was kind of the original... Um... Black Friday, moms literally fist fighting yes. over the toy. Very, uh, yeah, very much so. And the, and the thing is, is that you know because they were in short supply, they ended up being resold online for upwards of fifteen hundred dollars. Meanwhile, J- Jim Carrey made twenty million dollars to star in the fucking Cable Guy. <laughs> hey, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa! We will, look, <laughs> I've never we, watched we, this movie actually, so I don't it, know if it's good. So or not, we but. will not be slandering the Cable Guy. Okay, let's keep it moving. <laughs> okay. And one of the most grim things that happened that year, JonBenet Ramsey, the, the child beauty star, was found dead on fucking Christmas Day. And so, like, the, 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 the 90, 1994 was a year that like, I would like to remember, I would like to remember the 90s as, because there's just so many good memories and so many peaks in art and music, film. But 1996, in my opinion, was the embodiment of the 90s in terms of modernity and just bad things happening or not necessarily bad things happening, but trashy things happening, insane things happening. You know, like when you when you leave your band via fax, <laughs> that is one of the most 1990s things that could have possibly happened. Uh, and then I found this other interesting f- tidbit that it almost feels like a complete anachronism, something that happened almost in an alternate reality. There was a woman named Meg White, and she married a gentleman named John Anthony Gillis. He later changed his name to Jack White the following year and they became the white stripes. Now that now that is something special. <laughs> um and and, and um, let's circle back to something you mentioned because I think it actually uh it, it it plays an interesting role in Dave's own place in pop culture, but the fact that this is right when the Spice Girls were starting to take off means that we're looking at the shift in culture to the kind of boy band, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh girl band uh, you know, take five beautiful people, put them mm-hmm. together. And in a way, Dave, the Dave Matthews band was kind of like the antithesis of that. Very although much. very much using the same, um, the same kind of formula to take five very random people and put them on stage and, you know, create magic out of it or whatever. But the formulaic uh, approach that would then sort of lead the wave into the 2000s um, and, you know, lead us where to wherever we came from that with, mm-hmm. the, with the Britney Spears and the what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what Dave and Crash sort of launched into and then had to kind of ride a wave above that in order to keep themselves mm-hmm. afloat while the entire sort of music landscape was changing underneath them. You're absolutely right. And it's funny, when you talked about the boy band thing, it reminded me of a, 
in uh, Spin in 2002 when Busted Stuff came out. They ran a photo. I think it was their lead review when the month that album came out. And they gave it a pretty high score, uh, something like 8 out of 10 or 9 out of 10. But they had a picture of DMB, and of course, you know, they're not style icons in any sense. Uh, <laughs> and so the five of them are standing there. It's Boyd, it's Leroy, and everybody. And they're all wearing, a, you know, brightly colored clothes that don't really fit them very well. And, uh, and the caption said, either this is the Dave Matthews band or something went horribly wrong at the boy band factory. <laughs> I can, you know what? I can one up that comment because, um, in preparation for this, uh, episode, I was watching, um, Carter had done a series of drum tutorials off oh, of okay. off of a few songs mm-hmm, uh, from Crash. Specific, I think I've seen this. Yeah. Right, and they're on YouTube. And, and I mean, it, it's incredible. It's a master class in drumming. And we're going to talk at length about Carter's, you know, influence on this record. But uh, one of my favorite comments um, from the videos, and, you know, it's made in like the year 2018 or 2020 or 2020, mm-hmm. is that uh, they say Carter is the only man who makes wearing a wetsuit look cool. <laughs> and it's only... And it's yeah, only and it's, like a scuba suits, and, it's, right? and it's only when reading that comment do you then go back and recognize the fact that he is straight up wearing a scuba diving suit yeah. in this video. Well, and like he was also sporting like no fear merch, but like at well after the year two thousand, like where did he even get that? You know, in the year two thousand four, how is he wearing? You know, no fear and fucking Reeboks and you know <laughs> when you sell as many records as they did in that amount of time, you have the access to whatever you yeah, want. Yeah, if, yeah. if you want to bring back what was it, Yaga or whatever, I Yaga. mean, you, you'll find it. So, uh, with that being said, again, we have set the scene for uh, Crash. It arrived early uh, 1996, and once again, hot off of their debut album only two years before. This record was produced by Steve Lillywhite, and again, notable guest on guitar, Tim Reynolds. And let's jump right into the first track. Adam, so much to say. Okay, some fun facts about this song. Uh, first one, Peter Grazer, the uh, keyboardist that was with DMB until uh, 2000, or sorry, until 1993. Uh, he left. The final show he played was on 32393. Uh, it's often named Big League Chew uh, because apparently Big League Chew, the gum, the gum people were they had sponsored the show. Uh, anyway, Peter Grazer was the uh, co-writer of So Much to Say. And he left the band right before it got big, actually kind of knowing that it was going to be a big band and he needed to like stay home and take care of his mom and take care of his... He, he wasn't able to become a touring band guy. Um, anyway, uh, fun fact too about this song. Um, let's see here. Uh, the, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. I'm getting off track. Anyway, uh, the song, you know, when I first heard this uh, and revisited it again, I said to myself, this song has single written all over it. Uh, same way as What Would You Say, um, just down to the tight playing, the infectious and kind of weird opening riff. Uh, I remember the video for the track was so short. Um, it was definitely a song that just left you wanting more. Um, and uh, getting into the band much later uh, and seeing how they kind of seek, like anyone's seen the bridge into too much, made this a favorite for me for years. Um, it's partly because of the fact that uh, so much to say is this mannered but funky tune, and it gives the feeling that something really unhinged is right around the corner. And so them making it a single really just, you know, it was a smart single. It was a smart single, like just from a marketing standpoint. 
Um, and when I first heard so much to say into too much on 12, 1998, I was like, holy crap, even the singles like are massive jams for these guys. Uh, the, the, this was also the song, you know, when it, when it came out as a single, this was a song that really got DMB on my radar as a teenager. Uh, I remember the summer between eighth and ninth grade, this video and uh, too much were, uh, were on TV a lot. And even though I was not yet the fan I would later become, I was just, you know, simply paying attention. Uh, I remember thinking Dave Matthews looks a hell of a lot like Tom Hanks, and I thought it was strange that there was no electric instruments in the main group, you know, in the, in the I mean, except for the bass. And, uh, um, by the way, have you watched the video for this recently, by any chance? I have not. So the video it fascinates me. The whole thing takes place in this, like, um, it's, it's in a set that you would expect a lot of, like, 90s like rap or R&B tunes to take place. Like, it's a silver cavern, you know. Uh, that isn't quite, it's not quite like the inside of a cheese grater, like that meme, the R&B meme right. that you see. But <laughs> Dave, meanwhile, is wearing what looks like this oversized button-up shirt made of plastic or, so, or something shiny. And like the feeling is that like if Missy Elliott or Puffy were to show up in like those like trash bag oh, jumpsuits yeah. they would wear, it wouldn't seem that weird. You know? <laughs> and so I'm just imagining you know, this music video director thinking, like, I don't know what the fuck to do with these guys. Let's just use the set we used for the last Jodeci video or something. You know? <laughs> it, was, it was really interesting. Um, but anyway, yeah, those are my thoughts on the song. Huh? So one thing that's, that's really fascinating, and I kind of want to go deeper on it, is um, you mentioned that you believe that the feeling of this track is that there's something unhinged coming kind of like right around the corner, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we're exactly uh, going in the same direction of this, but I feel something very similar because uh, throughout this whole record, really, and I think it starts right here on the first track, there is what appears to be from time to time creeping in a a bit of a dark kind of undertone Mm -hmm. of, and it's mostly um, brought in by like Dave's lyrics and kind of his attitude on the record. Um, I think that we are in real time experiencing Dave going from, again, like a, a transplant from South Africa to a very kind of like shy, quiet, goofy dude uh, in a little town in, in Virginia where he's like a bartender to out of nowhere creating success with this, with this band and, and the first record. And then suddenly we've got so many themes of like his kind of uh, reaction to the new life that he's been pushed into, right? Yeah. And um, the, the track itself, you know, it, it starts again, again uh, with the same kind of lead and rhythm at the same time guitar riff. Uh, Dave, at this point, has sort of honed that into being his sound, uh, or at least this becomes the kind of iconic Dave sound that people remember him by. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and I think from, right from the get-go, it, it starts with that guitar riff, and we know that Dave is driving this boat. I mean, like, from the first couple seconds in, it's like, okay, Dave's got control of this thing, right? It starts with him just very, very charismatically, very confidently uh, singing his line and just rocking that line. And then the band comes in, and, you know, it's off to the races. And mm-hmm. uh, thematically, you listen to it, and it's got... It's got um, claustrophobia mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. um it's like concerns of being contained and mm-hmm, um, also mm-hmm. I, I find it really interesting too you know that uh, at, at the time a lot of people heard the lyrics uh b- about being trapped in the closet and mm-hmm. naturally mm-hmm. wanted to uh, you know uh infer that dave was like questioning his own sexuality or perhaps like mm-hmm. alluding to some secret of his and you know clearly the man's been married and he's got kids etc cetera, etc cetera. but mm-hmm. at the time 
Um, I don't think that it, it, it was too much to, to ask that people, uh, you know, wanted to know more about these types of things, right? He mm-hmm. was becoming a pop star. Yeah, and you know, it's, you know, the, the questioning of like who he is and what he's about and that sort of thing and questioning sexuality, I think that's also an easy thing to do simply because, and we've talked about this before, he's kind of an unconventional looking rock star. You know, if you told me, if you told me he was a bartender, if you told me he was a guy you knew at the hardware store. Yeah, if you told me he cut the grass. Yeah, yeah. He looks, he has the look of a, of a guy who is uh, pretty normal. Um, and when he is, when he's performing, he's unabashedly, he's very vulnerable, you know, by being goofy and by being sensitive, by being vulnerable, you know. And this was in the 90s at a time when a lot of rock bands, the, the frontmen, you know, would sometimes be weird, but there was definitely something aggressive almost always happening, especially the age of grunge, you know. Um, and it's true that, like, say, Kurt Cobain definitely wasn't like, you know, you know, he wasn't some like crazy jock, you know, fronting his band, but he had super heavy music, and, you know. And dude, and Nirvana was aggressive. And in fact, mm-hmm. I mean, such, such can be proven by how um, culturally impactful it was to do an unplugged mm-hmm. uh, performance on, you know, on uh, VH1 Unplugged or whatever that show is. The, MTV, just, yeah. MTV's Unplugged, just kind yeah. of an iconic mm-hmm. Nirvana moment was them simply going unplugged right yeah and and i remember especially 95 you know as i'm watching like the pop landscape on mtv a lot of bands that were really popular were still just super heavy like the, the you know the, the foo fighters came out bush was becoming a big deal um oasis was having their moment but they were making loud you know super loud very bombastic you know rock and roll um and uh and dave matthews band you know dave matthews in particular he's kind of coming up and you know um you know, he's just kind of a giant goofball. And so this kind of nuance of character, um, I understand is it's people don't know what to do with it. And that's why they might question, you know, like, you know, well, if he's, if, you know, if he's not a long haired, you know, crazy headbanger or whatever, maybe he is gay. Um, but I think we've come a long way since then. You know, the nineties again is it's a different time, different know? time, um, different, different. Uh, yeah. Just a different landscape in general. But I will say this, uh, what the reason that this podcast even exists, the reason that I would consider myself, you know, uh, at the age of 35, um, more or less a super fan of the Dave Matthews band is that when I saw their performance at, uh, Woodstock 99 hmm, and, yeah. uh, you can, I don't know if you can still find it, but somewhere on YouTube, you can still see them doing, uh, I know that warehouse is on there, not warehouse, um, watchtower. Mm-hmm. When I watched them perform the watchtower, this was my first sort of awareness of who they were as I was just kind of watching all the bands for all the music that was played that day or that night at mm-hmm. that festival. I was watching everything I could, and when they came up, I thought, oh, let's just see what this is. Mm-hmm. And when I tell you that they rocked so fucking hard yeah, in that performance, um, it made me understand that they could be just as loud as Corn. they could be just as loud as the Red Hot Chili Peppers, they could be just as aggressive, and have no electric instruments besides the bass. I mean, when I saw a bunch of acoustic instruments rocking that hard, um, I knew then and there that there was something else to music that I was missing, and that was what really started me down the path of, of appreciating the band. Absolutely. I, and I feel like everybody who becomes a fan eventually has a moment like that where they go, holy crap, these guys are heavy sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the last thing that I'll say about so much to say being the kickoff to this record is that the message, in my opinion, is very clear that 
Dave is talking to his audience and his critics and his fans and the press, uh, etc. with this first song. And he's basically saying, you guys do the talking. We're going to do the playing. Now strap in and let's go. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Now, track two, mm-hmm. Two Step. Take it away. Uh, two step. So you know, I uh, I remember last episode I was talking about the minor key verses, the major key, the major chord releases. Um, you know, in like typical situation, and uh, what was the other one? Nancy's. Um, this song may be Matthew's zenith of this approach to songwriting. You know, the, the band seeks effortlessly between verse and chorus. There's nothing unusual in terms of subject matter happening here. Uh, you know, Matthew's is just sweetly singing. You know, to his love and wishing for a wonderful life together. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, this song ends up setting a tone for a, a lot of, uh, another qualifier I use for this album, which is just kind of this ease, this effortlessness, the which all, you know, all the songs come together. Most of the songs were road tested for a long time. So of course, naturally when they get in the studio, they're just gonna, you know, kind of knock these things out. But, uh, but still, even the songs that were new, there is an ease and a breeziness, and it's definitely present here. Um, as far as, you know, I, I don't talk a whole lot about Matthew's songwriting, um, you know, and I don't have anything against it, of course. Uh, I do like here when he's talking about, he's, he talks about climbing two by two, and I feel like it's a callback to Ants marching both the song, but then also by extension the nursery rhyme. Um, you know, whereas Ants was kind of about everyone, you know, kind of independently living and sometimes suffering through their lives, you know, Matthews admits here it's it's all not so bad if you have someone to come home to, you know, and uh, and when he says, you know, these things we cannot change, I feel like that's another callback to the circumstances of Ants marching, this busyness of modern life, the, the kind of the, the what's it all for sentiment that comes after a long day or a week, and... Uh, you know, meanwhile, this song has kind of grown into this monstrous set piece. Um, generally, when you ask people, you know, uh, hey, what do you want to see at the show? You know, a, a, a popular request is going to be two-step, you know, and, and I, have the, there, I have a lot of uh, fan shows where people are chanting for two-step, uh, and whether they play it or not. Uh, it's just kind of like uh, one of the super popular, you know, set piece tunes that no one ever seems to get tired of. Well, it's an experience. Absolutely, absolutely. It becomes a showcase, you know, not unlike Jimmy thing, it becomes, it, it very, like, two-step is very much a, the, the Jimmy thing of this record, even though, even though it doesn't end up showcasing every band member in the same way, that's exactly what it ended up doing uh, uh, live, you know. Um, you know, two-step, when we, when we talked about uh, the songs on Underneath the Table, mm-hmm. uh, I made a comment about Warehouse that it very much reminded me of a Yanni song, because it <laughs> yeah. was... It lacked pretension, and it really embraced and almost celebrated the elements of dynamic songwriting, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was like such a joyous exploration of how loud and how quiet and how surprising and how dramatic can we really be musically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we had our, our conversation about Yanni's Live at Acropolis, and, and that's, that is a constant sort of like uh, trip through the dynamics of music. It's just mm-hmm. so, it's, there's just so many things to explore and experience there. Uh, Two Step, in my opinion, is the best Yanni song not written by Yanni. <laughs> That's so um, good. <laughs> it is. It is so dramatic and it's so dynamic. And I, you know, the power of those notes in the beginning, where it's got the little baby intro, and then it just mm-hmm. comes in with like bum 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 bum. Like it's so dramatic 
and you feel it. And when you're really in it, you feel suddenly you're in a movie and suddenly like the credits are rolling or something is starting. And it's more, like I said, uh, for the live show, it's an experience, but that's exactly what it is. It, it jumps out of the speakers to you and brings you back into it. And it is so, it's so powerful and it's so much. The, the idea of thinking of Yanni performing this song and of course playing two keyboards at once like he does, <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. And it, with his eyes closed and he's, he's, he's looking like he's getting a hummer below the keyboard. I, I don't, I don't want, if Yanni's not playing two keyboards at once, I don't want it. You don't want it. I don't want, that's not the Yanni that I want. So, so in a way I feel like two-step is really a, a meaner and more focused warehouse. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, there was there was one uh, 2005 live performance of this song. Uh, well, you know, the, like what I did, you know, when I first got into the band, is I noticed that uh, Butch Taylor would take a lot of extensive solos, and I'm, I'm a keyboard lover, I'm a piano lover, so of course I was seeking those out. And I came across this 2005 live performance of the show where they were uh, the whole thing slowed down, and it basically turned into like this mid-tempo house track, where like Dave was, you know, and, you know, Dave was improvising a vocal, and I don't know if they did this on purpose or if it was a fucking accident, you know, um, but they somehow, twenty minutes in, found their way back to the, you know, the dun 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 dun, you know, and uh, and it, it was definitely like a a testament to their, you know, exploration, uh, and you know, stretching things out, seeing what they can do. They know that people want to hear this song a lot, and so they've gone out of their way to experiment with it. You know, and then meanwhile, you know, when Tim Reynolds became a permanent member of the band again, oh, I shouldn't say again, but for the first time, you know, back in uh, 2008, you know, he regularly just like shredded the ever-loving shit out of the song. <laughs> and uh, and I love that, you know. Um, like I said before, it's very much like a Jimmy thing of this record. Uh, you know, a tune when it comes on, you know it's about to be a massive showcase of the band and what they're about and their ethos and everything else. Yeah, so, so the next track... Um and for so many reasons, you know, this, this track is, is worthy of being discussed, but, um, Crash, uh, which I'm sure has been, um, talked about at length many, many times over throughout the histories and will be discussed throughout the histories of, of songs that stayed, uh, you know, important and relevant, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So the first thing that I want to talk about, uh, Dave as a writer, uh, in this song, um, he really hung his hat on being the everyman in that first record, right? He was able to say very, very kind of like simple, um, to the point. We use the term cookie cutter or like fortune cookie good was the mm-hmm. was the way that we described a lot of his um, mm-hmm. the stuff that really stuck to your ribs that these mm-hmm. comments he would make. But here, as a writer, he's constantly sitting in metaphors, and even the 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 visual of two people crashing into each other mm-hmm. in itself mm-hmm. is such a beautiful and sweet and simplistic and mm-hmm. visual um, thing to say that it, it it really is interesting to showcase Dave stepping into a new, uh, kind of like a new level as a songwriter. Like he, mm-hmm. he's really growing into the artistry of his lyrics, right? Yeah. It's a satellite type approach in the strumming. Um, it's just smoother and it's got like a, a bit of a better approach to it. And um the bottom line is that this is the song that history chose. Uh, I, I'll go back to that a lot, yeah, but yeah. this is their wonder wall. This is their creep. Um, the way that history takes it upon itself to solidify great bands by offering that unexplainable connection from one person's thoughts to paper to the entire world. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Dave claims that he had no idea at the time, the, but looking back, he thinks he could have seen it for what it was, but I disagree. Um, I don't think you have, I don't think anybody ever knows that a song is going to be that thing that just lasts forever, that becomes bigger than the band itself, that becomes a part of pop culture. Um, yeah. As a fun note, uh, it, the song has reached the stage of its career now where it's being honored in nostalgic throwbacks like A24's recent indie success, Lady Bird. Uh, when the, mm-hmm. And it's almost like the song has been around so long that it's actually cool to talk about the yes. Dave Matthews Band again. Yeah, you know, uh, this song, even before I was into Dave Matthews Band, I learned this song was kind of like an albatross. I remember I knew a girl that I met on AOL, um, uh, who, or AOL or... Or maybe it was Bolt.com. It was one of the, like, the pre, one of the proto proto social networks, you know, f- from like Web 1.0. Pre AOL yeah, is yeah. Not, I, I'm not even aware of pre AOL, so well, that well, even dip predates me. Well, well, and like I used AOL as like a browser to visit this place. Sure, but it was but you know, and then we eventually started chatting on AIM. Uh, but she was a Dave Matthews Band fan, and and at the time I had like live at Luther College, but I wasn't the fan I would become in 2002. So this is like 1999, maybe 1998. Sure. And uh, I told her, I said, I really love the song Crash Into Me. That's a cool song. She was like, ugh, you're one of those. <laughs> you know? And it's, it's funny that the role this song played, especially pre-everyday, uh, uh, pre, uh, pre-everyday. Uh, pre like, this song was like the sellout song <laughs> for a minute there. You know? And I think that's funny given the way things played out. You know? um, why are you, because, because why? Because um, because every day in itself had that kind of like energy around him changed to electric and yeah, like, like the, the people had no idea how much things were going to change and how hard. Like, like I don't want to diss every day because actually it's an album I like. I like I, the, hey, I, and and I love every day. I really yeah, yeah. do. But but the people at the time had no idea how hard it was going to get to maybe stomach DMB sometimes their precious band, you know. Like how much the band was going to challenge them. Every day did it. Stand up certainly did it, you know. Um, and then of course, you know, the drama surrounding the Lily White sessions, like like the the beginning period, you know, the the first three albums is definitely a period where it's like later on you look back if you were a fan that was always there and you say we didn't know how good we had it. Sure, and and um, and, and as we go through all the records, uh, we'll certainly um, draw the lines between. Um, the, even now, as I mentioned, uh, talking about so much to say, there was foreshadowing big time that Dave was already starting to feel a certain type of way mm-hmm. about being in this band and being in the life that they had. Um, there's a lot of sort of, you know, hidden veiled type energy coming, uh, like a, a bit of a darker undertone mm-hmm. underneath some of this stuff that's kind of alluding to he doesn't know how long he's going to be able to take the pressure. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so a good friend of mine, Dina, who you also know, um, you've met at one point or another, uh, she's another big Dave fan, so we talked shop about Dave for years, uh, and she said, this is Matthew's Every Breath You Take uh, by the police. You know, it's this creepy, it's voyeuristic love song. Uh, it wins over listeners, you know, with its pretty arrangement, and the fact that Dave is definitely like a sex symbol, you know. Um, Lily White, you know, told Relics Magazine, he said, this is the one that got the moms. <laughs> You know, which is, well, uh, you and, know, and really dissect that too. Um, and again, I, I, I keep using this term. It's the one that history chose. This is the mm-hmm. one that made it easy to like Dave Matthews Band. This is the one yeah. that, oh yeah, this is the one that my sisters and their friends, anytime mm-hmm. it's on the radio, they're going to turn it up because oh, this is that song that everybody else likes. This yeah. is 
This is just a song that other people decided was good for you. Yeah, and, and it's definitely, you know, the, the song, that makes the song kind of an albatross, you know, but uh, because it's definitely like, it came to define DMB's legacy, but it doesn't necessarily illustrate who they are as a band. Um, and in my opinion, the song, it's okay live. It's not like a super awesome, you know, like when it comes on, I'm like, oh, this is nice. Um, and, uh, you know, but but it's it's a song that they had definitely had difficulty like learning how to end live. <laughs> like if you listen to Live Tracks Volume Four, uh, th- that's the CD release performance for Crash. Uh, so they're playing this song. It runs over seven minutes, and it spends at least two minutes like just completely petering out. And uh, later on, you know, when Matthews kind of added in the Dixie Chicken, I will chicken, be my dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they added the Dixie Chicken interpolation, they found a place to kind of like let the song peak. And then they brushed the whole thing clean with a final, you know, with some final guitar strums, and it felt like okay, now we, now it can exist in this world, you sure, know, in front of people. Um, now let me ask you this, and uh, I, I would love to get your like honest take on it. Mm-hmm. Do you think that when a when a song becomes as popular as Crash, is it even possible to be able to listen to the song and and decide whether or not it's good anymore? Because when I hear Crash, mm-hmm. and you've been hearing it for twenty five years or whatever. Mm-hmm. I can't necessarily uh, take it in and not have uh, some kind of bias attached mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to listening to it. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. How do you judge a song that's that popular and has been around that long? You know, I'm reminded of what Keith Jarrett said about you know, in this documentary uh, called Electric Miles, where they are talking about playing together. Uh, because when they're on tour, they're playing a lot of the same music every night. And in order to be a jazz band, especially at that time, because he's talking about the mid, the mid to early the early to mid seventies, so they're playing jazz rock fusion. They're playing like, they're getting up there and they're playing sketches of songs, right. you know. And he says the important thing is, is you have to just kind of be willfully ignorant. Um, and I think that's really important when you are trying to just decide what makes music good or any art good for that matter. You kind of have to force yourself to hear it in a vacuum. Of course, it's impossible, but but you can try at least. Um, it's and it's it's a super valid approach to, especially if you're the type of person that saturates themselves in music. Inevitably, what's going to happen is everything or nothing impresses you. <laughs> nothing impresses you anymore. And and those types of people usually go on to work for music publications. Uh. And, and, and and I don't mean <laughs> spoken like a true former music yeah, critic. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't mean and I don't say that to like throw dirt on music critics because music critics their job in a lot of ways is decide is to decide what music best represents the moment, like which music like what music is the most important. Um, sure, it gives it context. Yeah, yeah. And like like when Pitchfork gave Frank Ocean's Blonde, the album of the decade, that was a good move, you know, like that was, that was a a decision worth defending, you know, but I was definitely upset with them, you know, recently when they panned Boy Pablo's latest record that, uh, I can't even remember the name of it right now, but Boy Pablo is one of my favorite like bedroom rock, you know, uh, or bedroom pop uh, outfits that's come out that that they called them, (laughs) they called them one of um, Mac DeMarco's fail sons. (laughs) Like they were just so mean. Uh, and, and, you know, and here's the thing, too. Uh, Pitchfork also, at this point, um, I would say has been really relevant for about 10 years. And, mm-hmm. and e- is even uh, in, its, in the last few years kind of losing its relevancy as mm-hmm. blogs are going the way of kind of like, you know, independent uh, content through mm-hmm. like YouTube and stuff. But, but Pitchfork, um, uh, Pitchfork itself uh, has to... Oh, God, I completely lost where I was going with that. <laughs> 
Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll cut that out. Yeah. But, but isn't it interesting that really at a certain point as a music fan, your only hope is to get to a place where you're not so completely jaded that you can still find yeah. joy in yeah. something as simple as another person's music. And hopefully you start a podcast one day with another super fan. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so let's jump into, let's let's keep that energy up. Uh, you're upset about Pitchfork. You're mean. You're you're riled up. And now let's <laughs> jump in to Too Much. Too Much. All right. Uh, is this me or you? I don't care. <laughs> I can't remember. This is so you. I'm, I'm, I, because I, I, because I took Crash. Um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna let you take too okay. much. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, get you back into that. So speaking on that, you know, let's keep that energy up with mm-hmm. uh, Pitchfork, and let's, <laughs> let's, let's stay riled up. Let's stay mean, and let's jump right into track four. Too much. So, so I love too much for so many reasons. Um, you know, again, it goes back to how the song got on my radar in summer of '96. Uh, you know, th- this was the first time a song reminded me of rap music without being rap. Um, I mean, Matthews, he sings in the song, but it's also kind of a spoken word affair. You know, it's, it's goofy, it's fun, it's pissy, it has attitude, uh, but it's also got a message, you know, uh, which were things I loved about rap music back then as well. Uh, the, the moral aspect that really, the moral aspect is what really stuck with me. I spent much of seventh and eighth grade listening to Christian music. You know, some of my favorite bands during that time were like DC Talk, Audio Adrenaline, Newsboys, Jars of Clay. Uh, these are not bands I regret liking, but my worldview was such that like I didn't necessarily expect secular bands to take strong moral stances. You know, I I remember mainstream popular music being mostly romantic or or you know maybe heartbroken. Yeah, and, Se- Seal. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah, Kiss from a Rose was yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. was floating through the airwaves yeah, at the time. That's right. I love that song. Yeah, and angry. You know, sometimes or maybe sexual. You know, so seeing Matthews take this stance against gluttony. You know, and using these weird guys in suits to do it, but also not necessarily leaving himself out of the condemnation. It was everything I kind of expected from like a Christian testimony. You know, like we're a gluttonous society, and I know because I see it everywhere. But I've also struggled with it myself. You know, and and I kind of already understood that Matthews wasn't like a church-going type. And to me, like all of this kind of coming together was really badass. You know, making a song with a moral stance that was fun to listen to, but wasn't necessarily coming from like a Christian salesperson. You know, you know, and I and I mean, you know, as much as I loved all those biblical bands I listened to, I knew that they were that's where they were coming from most of the time. Their music was about their music was about being moral, but also like about increasing numbers. That's what like the, that's the pressure they were under from a lot of the major record labels, especially Forefront. You know, so like I mean, too much is just it's 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 always been a favorite. I never get tired of it. It's a bit like rhyme and reason for me. You know, I mentioned that before. I would just never I'm never upset when this song is getting played live. Uh, and one of my favorite memories of this tune is uh, in '04. They started doing this wild outro called the uh, the Yeah What Yeah Okay outro, and it was literally Beaufort and Matthews together doing the Chappelle bit <laughs> at the end. You know, like like Leroy Moore's playing this this wild wah, 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 this wild sax thing, and then Beaufort's going yeah, and Matthews is going what? You know, and then Beaufort <laughs> yeah, and then Matthews okay, like doing the whole thing. How funny? Yeah, it was fucking amazing. Um, and I didn't. What's funny is I hadn't watched Chappelle yet when when this when that song came on. I was like, what the fuck are so, they doing? So you, in a way, it's like to watch Chappelle was you saying like, oh, he's doing the Dave. He's doing the Dave Matthews thing. <laughs> yeah, he would love that. Yeah. Um, so. In, in the last episode, uh, talking about the last album, you, uh, you said something really poignant um, about Ants Marching. You said a lot of poignant things about Ants Marching, but mm-hmm. you had that um, you had the take on it that it was really um, digging deep into the sort of uh, 
the the feudal um, approach to going to work every day, working for someone else, coming home, and then doing it all like the daily grind, right? Mm-hmm. And really like honing in on the hopelessness and the isolation of that lifestyle. And in that sense, this is the complete bizarro world ants marching. Um, yeah, yeah. This this is Patrick Bateman's theme song. <laughs> um, it's it's worshiping indulgence. Uh, it's angry and it's mean. It's chaotic and it's intoxicating. And musically, when I listen to it, uh, especially this, the recorded version of it, how they what they accomplished in the studio is that it resembles the sounds of walking through the in, the streets of New York City. It is so the it, energy. Yeah. It, it is ener- like the energy. It's chaotic um, and it's intoxicating. There's so much happening at once. All of the buzzing saxophones, the drums, Dave just kind of you know yelling and and talking fast. Uh, coming and you know everything's panned in different parts of the speakers and it's kind of all surrounding you and that energy is really um again kind of like what you said i i this this might be my favorite song on the record it's the it's easily the most replayable mm-hmm. and um it, it has it stands out uh above and beyond from a lot of his other work man the, the fact that you brought up new york is really really smart because of the fact that dave you know, when he when he came to the United States, he developed a fascination with New York City, and it and it's like continued. You know, like when you listen to the Central Park concert, he just talks about how much he loves it there. Um, but also on Live with Ecology, he talks about how much he loves New York City. Um, and I've been there. It's not. Uh, it doesn't impress me the way it impresses him. Uh, but uh, but the the energy that you tapped into. You're right. There is a there. Just walking down the street in New York is incredibly it can be an incredibly exhausting affair it's visceral i mean yeah, it, it's visceral. Yeah. It, it's an experience you're you're getting it um from every every um sensory uh you know exposure that you can get you're getting it in new york city for yeah, sure yeah yeah and it's not just the energy of the, the hustle and bustle but it's the fact that like you have so many people from so many different walks of life all living their walks of life to the hilt you know and the energy the intensity there is definitely no other place like it in the United States and um, maybe even the world. Yeah. Maybe in the world. And so like, yeah. And too much, it actually kind of taps into that chaos. Absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, too much is one of the first Dave songs I ever heard. They did. It's, it's famously one of their only late night performances they've ever done. And this was back in like 1996. I think Mm -hmm. that they were on the Dave Letterman show. Um, you can still find the video on YouTube, but Mm -hmm. it's so interesting to see the band performing at that time because you've got Dave and his, this is exactly the Dave that I remember the, the imprint of mm-hmm. when like uh, you first see an artist and then you just think of them that way forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the Dave with the loose fitting clothing and the janky leg kind of like mm-hmm. spasming from side to side. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, he's just he's just really um, uniquely owning his presence on stage. He's he's singing, rapping, scatting, weirdo, mm-hmm. 90s rocking while this really eclectic group of musicians around him, like you've got Leroy Moore just sunglasses on in his own world. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, really, it's really something else. The band in itself is almost as chaotic as this song. Absolutely. You know, it's funny you bring that up too, because like Dave, of course, is just like, he's given, especially if I, by people who are too cool for Dave Matthews' band, like Dave is definitely like considered just like a huge dope, like a big, <laughs> a big dork and everything. But how is he different from Tom York? Tell me. 
because I've seen Radiohead live numerous times, and Tom York looks like a fucking like like a weird <laughs> newborn baby with fucking blonde eyebrows, and he's running around with his eyes closed, and he's flopping around, and he's acting, and now he looks like a samurai these hold, days. Hold on, man. You let's, know? let's 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 uh, let's. Let's um these are the same guy yeah, let's, is what let's, I'm saying. Let's also uh you know give the give the precursor here that we love Radiohead. We love Radiohead. Love Radiohead. Yeah, and we love the fact that 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 Tom York is just this flailing idiot sometimes on stage. I just don't understand why he gets a pass. He's British. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> guess. There, there's a, clearly he's British. That's that's clearly there's there's absolutely no other reason that people like Radiohead <laughs> over the Dave Matthews band other than the fact that they're British. Next next song. Um <laughs> so Let's jump into uh, number five, number 41. Um, famously, this is a response to a lawsuit between the band and an old friend of the band's, right? Uh, it's, and in that sense, it's a very unique diss track. Um, it, is, it is entirely written from Dave's perspective of a friend of theirs suing the band over something that Dave at the time felt was very minuscule. But the guy at the time, um, do you, I don't know, do you have more context uh, uh, situation. You no, know, I have about as much as you do, I've, and I've always thought the background of this song, like when I don't remember exactly when I finally looked into it, but when I looked into it, I was like, "What? Yeah. It's about a former manager mm-hmm. who who about it's about ownership. It's a, it's a diss track. Yeah. It, well, and well, and I don't know if I don't know if I necessarily label it a diss track, although I think it's a valid point. But I, I but it, it definitely feels like something where Dave is kind of mourning the passing of a, you know, a, 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 an old, old friendship, friendship. Yeah, an old exactly. But but it's. Uh, like this is the strangest background that this song could possibly have, given its legacy in like the history of DMB. Sure, and, and the mood and the attitude are very different. You know, it's a it's an interesting foray into jazzy adult contemporary rock music. Mm-hmm. Um, the song breathes so well on record and uh, live. It's often a highlight of the of the live Dave experience. Um, it's meant to be listened to while the sun is setting and you're surrounded by friends and fellow enthusiasts. And you're all experiencing a perfect escapism at the same time, right? The song in itself uh, is a community drug. It, it's just something that when it when you hit you at the right time, um, you you just kind of like become elevated for a moment. Just and I think that they capture it was like lightning in a bottle. The the tempo, the the mood, the attitude, the kind of swagger of it, and mm-hmm. even on record. You know, and you got to think about how weird the song is too, right? Where it's like they they went in the studio and they were just like, okay, here's a really pretty song. It's very slow. It's very kind of chill. Uh, and, and then we're gonna throw in about two to three minutes of straight up saxophone solo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and and I just I I would just love to hear the the people at RCA at the time being like, what you were gonna you're gonna do what with the what the <laughs> does it have to be three minutes? Does it have to be half the song? Is it a saxophone solo? Uh, yeah. Does it have to be that? <laughs> You know, uh, man, the the communal element that you're talking about, I think, is is right on the money. Especially because I don't know if there if there's there's not a fan that dislikes this song. You know, in fact, it's like many people will hear this song and go, "Oh, well, this is my song." You know, absolutely. <laughs> as as if as if everyone else doesn't feel the same way. I know people who, as adults, uh, feel they are represented. Like they they feel that this song is the musical representation of them as a person. I know people like that. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, it, that's interesting. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a it's, it's it's interesting the way the the song has struck such an emotional chord with people. Um, to to me, the entirety of the album kind of hangs on this song. Um, it's everything the rest of the album is. You know, it's pretty, it's jazzy, it's loose, it's contemplative, it, it's nostalgic, it's subdued, 
It's childlike, it's breezy, it's wondrous, it's pained, it's lush, it's technical. And again, most importantly, it's unlabored. You know, it just, you talked about that three minute solo, and yet this song flies by. Every time it comes on, I'm like, man, that's good. Right, because the way that it ends, it goes right into the next track, and you and it, it always ends too soon. Well, and, but I feel like many of the songs on this particular album, even though they are stretching out and they're allowing this kind of maximalism, a sort of maximalism to happen, um, there is still an economy to the music. All the songs travel... All the songs, the, the amount of ground that they cover, you, you, you look at the time counter and you think, oh, that should have been longer. It was only six and a half minutes. It was only <laughs> seven minutes. You know, and, uh, and, you know, and, and so it's, it's the fact that it's unlabored. It's the fact that they just kind of transition into different passages very, very easily, very quickly, and make you feel like you're going a lot of different places. Um, well, let's I, not forget real quick that speaking of maximalism, this is a pop record where not a single song comes in at less than four minutes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just heavyweighted songwriting that still manages to feel lean, you know. Um, and, and I think it's interesting that Sam, or that, Sam, that, that Dave woke up one day and just said, you know, I, I, I'm going to write a, a melancholic set piece that kind of is the thesis of this record. You know, uh, and we, you know, you talked about the background, and I think it's, it's weird. Uh, you know, I understand Matthews was chronicling his grief over the loss of the former manager, you know, and the friend. Um, I prefer not to actually think about any of that when I hear this song. <laughs> sure, fair enough. You know, yeah, and I don't, I don't think about the lyrics much, period, uh, regarding this song. I, I love Matthews' vocal. I love the melodies that it takes. And kind of looking at the lyrics... You know, piece by piece, I'm sure you can find something in there that really means something to you. Um, but for me, this is the closest I'll ever get to basically uh, being okay with like a fake language on record. Like I hate Seeger Raz, but like, you know, I'm okay with the fact that like Dave is just making sounds with his voice in this song and it's all very pretty and I don't necessarily need to know what the song is about. Um and he's kind of having this conversation that happens to be musical. You know, this, this is the thing he gets better and better at each passing album, I feel like. He's able to kind of communicate independently with his vocal of his guitar and of the rest of the band. Um, and uh, he's like the exact opposite of like Maynard James Keenan in that regard, <laughs> who I think is always singing exactly with the bass and the guitar. Uh, and um, It's fascinating. Yeah, and then like, you know... This is an extremely. This song is extremely melancholic, but at the same time, incredibly sweet. Uh, you know, of all the songs that they've written that kind of cradle or, or kind of um, uh, uh, stand in both the smile and the tear. You know, in the in the Matthews catalog, this is probably the one that takes both elements to their most extreme. And I feel like that's why people like this song. You know, uh, it's just it's whatever whatever they happen to be feeling in the moment. Um, that is remotely uh, nostalgic or sentimental is just going to be projected onto this tune, you know. Um, and it doesn't matter what the lyrics are about. It doesn't matter the lyrical background. In fact, I think when most people find out the story behind this tune, they're probably a little bit dumbfounded. Um, you but, know, but but everything Dave says is cryptic enough to kind of project any sort of heartbreak onto you. And I, and I doubt most people who love this song have done more than that. You know, uh, two things that are are are. At this point in the record, two things are really interesting. Um, and again, we're, we're just getting to track five, so we're just about halfway. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that Crash Into Me and Forty One are so closely put in the set list together, like mm-hmm. on the on the track listing, mm-hmm. you know, Forty One is is so similar to Crash, uh, but it's almost like it's kind of like cooler cousin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a little bit cooler than Crash is, and yet Crash went into the stratosphere, and Forty One was never even a single. It just kind of exists. Uh, with a lot of love within the um, kind of like stratosphere of the Dave Matthews fan experience, right? The live shows and this record. Uh, it, it, it uh, This is something that I do want to talk to you about later, and, you know, we'll, we'll bring it up in a little bit. But um, number 41, when you think about the Dave Matthews band, Mount Rushmore, top five songs, like the ones <laughs> that would go, yeah. uh, Crash and 41, in my opinion, are both on there. Yeah. Um, for very, very different reasons, and yet they're so similar songs. Um, so there's that, and, and again, we will follow back up with that kind of like uh, Mount Rushmore thing, but the other thing that I do want to touch upon is that we're five tracks in, halfway through, and you made a comment that you want to exist, you want to believe that that he's not really saying anything. Like, you're okay <laughs> You're okay believing that the lyrics are kind of nonsensical and almost like unimportant to the, to mm-hmm. the song itself, but... Mm-hmm. To me, knowing the background of this song, um, really just kind of touching on the way that his newfound fame has destroyed a very personal and important relationship, three of these five songs already, So Much to Say, Too Much, and 41, have all sort of brought um, these, these themes to the forefront of Dave trying to come to terms with what his new life is, and it doesn't necessarily sound like he enjoys it that much. And that's that sort of darker undertone, those darker themes yeah. that are just sort of bubbling up from the surface that that are going to make themselves pretty present moving forward in further albums. Man, you are uh, you're really onto something there. That's like totally something that went that zipped right by me. But yeah, I agree with you. And it's funny that you're saying these things because it does actually tie into something that I'll get to when we talk about our final thoughts on the album. Are you looking for a conversation that is both obsessively relevant and culturally stimulating? Then look for Deep Dive Guys on any social media platform. That's at Deep Dive Guys. You keep listening, we'll keep talking. <laughs> 